Uh, if you want to open your Bibles, you can open them to Luke chapter 18. We just began a new teaching series just a couple of weeks ago, uh, a series we're calling Lifehouse. And it comes out of uh, this story that Jesus tells in Luke. The story is of a demon, of an unclean spirit. And uh, when we pick up the story, the, the unclean spirit is, is walking around, wandering around in the wilderness, wandering around in the desert. He has been ousted from his home, ousted from his, his place of residence, and he's wandering around in the desert. But he wanders around and wanders around and can't find anywhere else to live. And so he decides to return to the place he was kicked out of. And he returns to the home that he was forced out of, and he finds it swept and clean and neat. And everything is in place and everything is in order, except it's empty. Seizing an opportunity, he goes and calls seven of his friends, seven spirits even more evil than himself, seven spirits even more unclean than himself, and they come and they occupy the house. And this story is about when you take something out of your life, you must put good back in. We must fill our lives with the teachings of Jesus in tangible, practical ways. Otherwise, we leave ourselves open. Are you following? And so we must fill our lives with the teachings of Jesus Christ, but, but it's not enough just to fill ourselves. It's not enough just to fill our family and make sure that we're on point with Jesus' teachings. We must also teach others. That's Matthew 28, verse 20. Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God, and teach. We who are the students are to become the teachers of Jesus' commands, of Jesus' words, of Jesus' wisdom. We are to share this with the world, with others. And so this series, Lifehouse, is about what are these teachings and how are we to share them? What are the essential commands that we are to obey and to teach others to obey? And in Luke chapter 18, I just want to walk through just a brief story that Jesus tells. It begins in verse 9 and 10. It says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. Jesus told this story to some who were big-headed and scorned everyone else. And he begins, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. Now, this, uh, this story of Jesus is, as Barclay describes, a story from real life. This isn't made up. This is actually something Jesus probably witnessed. Like, this, this actually happened. One day at a temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector came in, and, and immediately the audience who's listening to this thinks that this is, this is already some kind of, of bad joke. Like, a sinner and a saint went into a bar together. That's what it sounds like, right? That's how this starts. And people are already waiting for what's, what's the punchline. So let me describe our two characters that we have. We have a Pharisee and we have a tax collector. Uh, a Pharisee is, um, literally it means a, a separated one. Um, so there were how many commands of God in the Old Testament? Originally inscribed on tablets, how many? Ten. Very good, very good. The Pharisees took these Ten Commandments of God and multiplied them. 
And then they multiplied them again. And then they multiplied them again. Until they had literally tens of thousands of commandments of God. Literally, they, they looked at the minutiae, the every detail of life, and put a specific command of God on it and around it. There were very specific ways that you had to wash your hands. We talked about that, that a few weeks ago. But there were also specific ways that, that the water you used to wash had to be kept just like that. And so Pharisees are like our OCD of the Bible, right? They're, they're obsessed with, with the minutia of, of details. And what happened is... As a Pharisee, you couldn't live like everyone else lived. In fact, that, that became a rule. That became another one of these commands. Like, you can't talk to and you can't do business with people who don't keep the rules like you keep them. And if you altered or omitted anything, it was a deadly sin. And so literally, do you see how the Pharisees name, got their name? The separated ones. They separated themselves from everyone else. They separated themselves from the world. They isolated themselves. And in that isolation, what do you think their thoughts turned to people who weren't like them? Yeah, they looked at others who didn't keep the, keep the rules with such religiosity, with disdain. And so when I read this story about the Pharisee and separated ones, I, there's this picture that just jumps in my head as soon as I read the story. And in Luke, in Luke in general, the Pharisees are kind of the bad guys. They're the church guys, but they're the bad guys. And, and so the image I get, and I cannot shake it, and you're going to have to just deal with it through today, but the image I get of the Pharisee is the, is the picture of the character from the movie Aladdin, the character Jafar. Do you remember this character? Go ahead and show that image. When I think Pharisee, that's the picture I see in my head, right? Long, flowy clothes, higher above everyone else, and, and make no mistake about it. The Pharisee, Jafar, believed that he was the good guy and everyone else was bad. Now, the tax collector is the antithesis of this, um, it's interesting that uh, the tax collectors didn't have a good reputation at all. You know, at least you could admire at least some of the, the Pharisees' dedication. But a tax collector, first and foremost, is a traitor. The Roman government, to collect taxes from a certain area, would, would basically uh, uh, offer the job of tax collector to the highest bidder. So it's a job that you could, you could buy, you could buy for yourself. But for a Jew to work for the Roman government would be like you signing up to work for ISIS. You got it? Does that make sense? Like you're working for the bad guys. You're working for the traitors. And the Roman government was this, this occupying force. And so tax collectors have already made a deal with the devil. And now there's an opportunity for tax collectors to be extremely dishonest. I know that's much different from today. But the arranged uh, uh, tax, the, the sum of the tax that the tax collector was supposed to collect for Rome was not disclosed to the public. That was between the Roman government and the tax collector. So as long as Rome got their cut, they didn't care about anything else. And so it created a great opportunity for a tax collector well, to know, well, I've only got to get this much and the people don't know how much that is. So why don't I charge 
this much. It created a great opportunity for, um, like I said, just, just horrible dishonesty to, to, to charge substantially more. And, and for the most part, tax collectors became very, very, very wealthy because anything they charged over the amount due the Roman government to them was all gravy. But maybe the worst part about the tax collector, and uh, in Greek, the, the name tax collector is Visa, MasterCard, and Amex. Um, not really, loosen up people. Um, <laughs> but when the tax collector came to you and demanded a certain sum from you, if you couldn't pay, he would very, very generously loan you the amount that you owed at an extremely high, unpayable 17.5% interest rate. Not only were they traitors, not only were they dishonest, now they are making slaves, right? That's what the scripture says. The borrower is a slave to the lender. They begin to enslave people. They sold their heritage to make a dishonest profit from the misfortunes of their own people. And scripture in Luke, um, it is, a, is it any wonder that public opinion classed robbers, murderers, and tax collectors all together as the same? So these are our two characters. We have Jafar and we have the tax collector. Let's look at the next verses. In 11 and 12, it says, The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. And I wish we could hear Jesus tell this story. Like, did he use an accent in this part? Or did he stand up? Or Because this, this prayer deserves some drama. And, and I don't have it in me. I'm not good enough. But, but this prayer deserves some theater. Uh, it, it, it had to come off something like, I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. See how this works. For I don't cheat. I don't even sin. And I don't commit adultery. And I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. Now, it's not unusual for, for people to stand and pray. There, you know, there are these kind of ordered times of prayer. When you come to the temple, there's times of day you come, and, and everyone says their prayer. But let's just say, you know, it comes across in, in Scripture that Jafar doesn't mind being seen, okay? Is that, is that fair? Is that, is that the softest way I can say it? You know, and he goes on to tell God he did far more than what was necessary. You were only required to fast once a year. And he, he just makes his, this, this comparison between himself and everyone else. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. And then he does this thing that it's it's very interesting that he kind of picks out some, some specific sins. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. It's interesting. Like, why, why these sins? And so there's a part of me that wonders, like, is this kind of like a, like a Freudian slip? You know, is he, are these really his sins? And he's pretending like they're not? Or, I, I think the next line, that he, he says, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. 
When he says, I'm thankful that that I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery, is he looking at that tax collector? Maybe pointing at him. Is he naming the sins of the tax collector? Rubbing it in his face. Shaming him. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. There's a whole different... Do you, do you just feel the emotion of, of, of that verse? Do you feel it? Like, I mean, I mean it, is just, it is just dripping. He stood at a distance. He wouldn't even, he, he, he wouldn't even raise his eyes. And he does this, this ancient, like, emotional, deep gesture of repentance, of beating his chest. And he cries out, Oh, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Really, in Greek, it says, I am the sinner. What he says is there's no one worse than me. I am the creme de la creme of sinners. And it is this man, hated, despised, traitor, sinner of all sinners, that Jesus names the hero in our story. Look at the next verse, the last verse. Jesus steps out of this picture and he says, I tell you, this sinner, the tax collector, not Jafar, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So, how am I supposed to teach you about humility? I'm not qualified for this task. I'll just go ahead and, and put that out there. This is just the teaching of Jesus, so I'm sharing it with you. I don't pretend to have this down or have this figured out. But a couple of the lessons that I want us to learn from, from this, this teaching as we look to fill our house, fill our lives with the teachings of Jesus. The first lesson comes from a, a television show that I used to love called Monster Garage. You guys, does it, Do any of you remember this? All right, so ladies, I know you don't know. It's not The Bachelor. This is Monster Garage. This is a man show. It was a man reality show where um, uh, the host, Jesse James, who is not really a Christian, um, w- would bring together these master mechanics and, and, uh, and metal workers and fabricators from all over the country, and he would give them one week in this, this meager budget and they had to turn a car into a tank, or, or they had to turn a car into an airplane, or, or they had to do so, turn a car into Godzilla. I don't know, like turn a car into a transformer. Like th- this was their task. Like they had to do some like crazy, ridiculous, unreasonable mechanical task. And as you watch this series of shows, Jesse James, kind of the kind of the head, kind of the lead, the master mechanic, craftsman, you know, awesome welder begins to have this test that he puts all the mechanics through every show. 
So Icho brings in these different experts, these different fabricators from all over the country, and he spends a week with them. But he begins to, to, to create this kind of ego test, this pride test for them. And so he would give a, give a mechanic or a, or a fabricator or a welder this job, and he would kind of walk up behind them and just casually ask, do you know what you're doing? And they didn't know it, but the trap was set because he always received one of two possible answers. Overwhelmingly, the young guys the new shop owners, the guys straight out of school, the, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the kind I'm talking about, the guys with, with something to prove, the, the guys who need publicity maybe for their own shop, the, the guys who have this deep desire to show how competent they are. When Jesse would shove a camera in their face and ask them, do you know what you're doing? The young guys would always say, yeah, I've got this. They may have never done the task they were doing before. But when asked, do you know what you're doing? It was easy for them to say, I've got this. Now, the other response that Jesse would get was primarily from the old guys. Because he would bring in like these seasoned mechanics and welders and fabricators. These guys that had been in the business for 30 and 40 years. I mean, these are, these are really master artists, really. I mean, these aren't just book educated, but they've had experience on the ground. And most of the tasks they've done, they have done some form or fashion of it maybe a hundred times. And still Jesse would slide up behind them, camera in the guy's face, and ask, do you know what you're doing? And the old guys would reply, you know, I've got a lot to learn. Isn't that interesting? And so there's two characters in, in our story with Jesus, and, and I want to kind of talk about these two characters. One character is the I've got this character, and the other character is I've got a lot to learn. Um, let's talk about I've got this first. So when I used to do student ministry, we would go on trips, and, and I know this is hard to, to fathom, but we would have all these, these vans. Sometimes we would take over 100 teenagers on a trip, and we'd have these 15 passenger vans lined up. And uh, when we would get back from a trip, parents were supposed to be at the church at this time to pick up their kids, but inevitably there were always parents who didn't want their kid and um, <laughs> thought that, that just me keeping them was a good idea. And so... Um, but I would have like, you know, six or seven 15 passenger vans and a few teenagers hanging around while we're waiting for the parents. And I needed to get these vans from where they were at the drop off point to the other side of the massive church parking lot in the par parking lot to the place where we stored the vans. Now, I couldn't just leave the kids while I shuttled the vans back and forth. And so I said, well, you know, these kids are young, they're teenagers, they're, they're going to turn 16, they're going to need to learn to drive anyway. <laughs> and so I started this thing with, with me safely in the driver's seat in an empty parking lot, putting teenagers in the driver's seat of 15 passenger vans. I told you, I'm not very smart. <laughs> and this interesting thing happened. I began to see very quickly the ones that I should be worried about. Um, you know, and I was right there, and we were going slow. 
I remember a a 13-year-old girl popped her in the driver's seat of this 15-passenger van, which is not like your Honda Civic or anything. And uh, she immediately jumped in, shut the door, buckled her seatbelt, and said, I've got this. And I knew I was in trouble. Because her very next question was, now which one's the gas and which one's the brake? Pride, I think, is the opposite of humble, and we made it to the other side of the parking lot. Pride says, there is a God, and I could be him. Right? It sounds a lot like our Pharisee. It sounds a lot like Jafar. Pride is is what Adam and Eve said in the garden, right? Right? I can take this, I can taste this, I can eat this, I can touch this, I've got this. I think uh, pride shows up even uh, when we text and drive, right? That what's going on in my life is more important than the lives of the people around me. Have you seen this happen? Pride, Pride says... Pride says, I I can watch whatever I want and it won't affect me. Pride says, I can use whatever language I want. It won't affect me. I've got this. Pride says, I I can do whatever I want. I can can do different things with my money. I I can act however I want. I've got this. And I don't want you to think I'm just picking on the young here because there's a whole other depth of pride that comes from getting older that I'm going to get to in a second. And, and, and just on a side note, as we, as we talk about pride, just as kind of the opposite of humility, how do you think non-Christians view our church? I mean, we have, we have a beautiful building. We have uh, perfectly manicured grounds. All of you are dressed it so, so nicely. We, we filed in very quietly. Honestly, there's, there's no sign of sin anywhere around here. Right? There's, I, I bet there's hardly even a sinner here. You know, Jesus' audience didn't appreciate being compared to the evil Jafar any more than you and I would. But that, I think that's what's happening here. I think that's the warning that Jesus is giving. He's saying, you know, there's really two characters, and we'd rather, you know, if we're choosing, I would rather be that one in the middle, right? Uh, I'm definitely not going to be like the Pharisee, so showy and arrogant and self-righteous, but I'm also not going to be just as vulnerable and emotional and and authentic as the tax collector. I'm just going to be somewhere in the middle, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 there's no middle ground. Really, I think the distinction is, if you're not beating your, be- your breast before God, which one are you? Anyway, just something to think about. Is our church sending the message that says, I am a sinner? Or does our church overwhelmingly send a message that says, I've got this? So let's talk about the second kind. 
I've got a lot to learn. Um, there's a great quote that says, it's impossible to teach a man that thing which he believes he already knows. Right? It's impossible to teach someone something that they believe they already know. That's why teaching teenagers is impossible. <laughs> right? Because they already know everything. A prideful man is not teachable. Isaac, I'm going to pick on you again for a little bit. I know, wake up over there. Isaac, you just graduated. Um, we're super proud of you, brother, uh, really. And this church loves you. We, we saw ridiculous pictures of you falling on your bottom like 100 years ago. Um, and I, I want you to enjoy this day. I want you to enjoy this time. It is, it is a great, great, great achievement. You have learned a lot. You know a lot. And for that reason, you are in the danger zone. Because with all you know and all you have achieved, starting this fall, when you go to Tennessee Tech, you're going to learn exactly how much you don't know. And that's an important lesson for all of us. Do you know how much you don't know? That's the danger zone for us adults, right? You know, there's a pride that comes with youth, but there's this other pride that comes with age. Maybe you've been around, maybe you've graduated, maybe you've lived many, many, many years, and you've had a career, and you've had successes, and you've faced all these different challenges. And one of the things that can happen is the more we know, uh, the more we know, the more inflated our pride can become. And the danger is to think that as adults, as even some senior adults, that Isaac can't teach you anything. Why? Because you already know it all? You know, I picked on the, the teen class. That's why we can't teach the teen class. But it's also why it's difficult to teach the Horizon class, right? How am I supposed to teach you something you think you already know? And yet Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, describes himself as humble. And he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And what are those next four words? Say them aloud. Teachable. Teachable. Between Jafar and the tax collector, which one is Teachable. Which one says, I've got a lot to learn? The tax collector. The tax collector, as I mentioned, is, is the hero in Jesus' story, and he's the hero just because he's there. Um, <laughs> he could have been anywhere else, right? Let's be honest. If the tax collector didn't show up at temple that day, no one would have missed him. And just the fact that he's there, just the fact that he's at the temple, can you imagine the risk and the ridicule that he was facing just showing up? How he opens himself up to this. The most hated guy in town shows up at temple. And Jafar is in the corner telling everyone his sin. 
That'd make anyone come up with a better excuse to, uh, and a good excuse to be anywhere else, to be somewhere else. But the tax collector is a hero because he refused to allow his overwhelming sin, his overwhelming sense of inadequacy to keep him from God. And that is a powerful lesson for us. He could have let his wrongs incapacitate him, yet he didn't let his fear and failing stop him from coming to God. He didn't let his guilt disqualify himself from the love and forgiveness of God. The courageous tax collector knew more about the character of God than the Pharisee did. Am I right? The courageous tax collector knows more about the grace and forgiveness and desires of God than the Pharisee could have ever imagined. And he teaches us this incredible lesson about true humility, and that is true humility doesn't keep you from God. Pride does that. True humility draws you near. To God. Speaking of humility, there was this song um, that I used to sing when I was in the youth group. We would sing it like around the campfire and all those kind of things. It's a, it's a really easy song called Humble, Humble Yourselves in the Sight of the Lord. You guys remember this song? So the guy kind of starts it and then the girls kind of repeat. All right, so I'm going to do my act of humility today. You guys ready to sing? I know you're not Church of Christ, but you guys sing anyway. All right? So we're going to do a cappella here just for a second. If you know it, sing it with me because I need your help. I'm just going to sing the first line of this. Ladies, you just repeat me. And I just want to sing the, a part of this song. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. There we go. Guys, sing it with me. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. Let's do it again. Guys, I didn't hear you sing, so let's get the elbow in there. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. There you go. And he will lift you up and he will lift you up at the very end of this passage in luke 18 verses 14 look what he says for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. To exalt in Greek means literally to lift up. And humble, if you're looking for a definition, means to make low. Make yourselves low in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. It has been said that the gate to heaven is low, so that no one may enter it except on his knees. So we're going to move into a time of 
response and communion. A couple of things are going to happen at once. We've set up some communion tables around the back of uh, the back of our room. There's three tables, and in just a few moments, I'm going to say a prayer, dismiss you to these tables to take the to take the 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 juice and the and the and the bread, the the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It's something we do every week. It's something we value. We think it's so important. And over the past couple of weeks, we've we've challenged you kind of with a question, and and even asked you to have a communal communion, like genuinely to, to make a small group or get with a group of friends or get with your spouse and take communion together and share it together. But, but today you're, you're off the hook because I want you to take it on your own. Today, as you take communion, I challenge you to follow the example, not of Jafar, but of the tax collector. When was the last time you with all the sincerity and genuineness of someone beating their breast, made yourself low before God. Maybe you've allowed your sins to to keep you at a distance, to keep God kind of at arm's length, still trying to prove how good you are. And if you've been kind of holding God off and kind of standing back and, and trying to, to wear this face of very reserved and, and very orderly and very, very mild and very good, then now's your chance to take all of that off. To be true before God. Now's your chance to humbly approach God, to demonstrate that you are teachable that you have a lot to learn. Now is your chance to confess your sins, to receive the gift of life that only He can give. As we take this bread and cup, which represents the body and blood of Jesus, poured out for yourself. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now, and as we've, we, we've sang the song and we've read your words, Father God, I pray that, that whatever hardness, whatever, whatever stiffness in us would be removed. God, so easily we, we try to put on this show, we, we try to have this appearance that, that we've got it all together, that, that we've got this. When in reality, Father God, when we recognize how much we don't know and the ways that we've messed up, then, then Father God, it, does, it can't help but draw us to you. You are the source of life and hope and forgiveness and grace. And God, as we take this cup and as we, as we break this bread, as we remember your son, Jesus Christ, what could be a more authentic communion than to come to you with our sins, to come to you with our failings, to come and to make ourselves low at your feet? Father God, we are drawn to you. You are the one who makes us whole. 
can, can cleanse us, can forgive us of, I don't care how bad it is or how far we've strayed or how far we've wandered, but Father God, you are a good God who desires us, who is waiting for our return like a long lost son, Father God, you are waiting for us to return to you. And in your arms, we can find hope and rest and forgiveness. So, Father God, as we take this cup and as we remember your son, as we break this bread, let us make ourselves low before you so you can lift us up. We love you, Father. And in your son, Jesus' name, everyone together says, so at this time, I